Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 24, 2017, we feature another major story in the WPJ Fall issue about rape and power in Nicaragua, which has the highest numbers in all of Latin America for that most serious of sexual abuses. We'll also spotlight other top stories in the issue, cover line Constructing Family. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. Until one year ago, Latin America's longest-running insurgency was still a pox on a nation that had otherwise achieved one of the most stunning turnarounds in history. When Colombia's left-wing FARC rebel movement finally agreed to set down its arms last November and convert itself into a political party, a lot of heat was directed toward President Juan Manuel Santos. He was branded a traitor, a dupe, and accused of disrespecting the memory of thousands of civilian victims murdered, kidnapped, and otherwise brutalized by FARC terrorism over the decades. And that's just from members of his own party. In fact, the peace has been a boon to a country that had become a byword for failed state only a decade earlier. Multiple layers of violence, drug cartels, the FARC itself, and other left-wing rebel movements, the army, right-wing landowners' militias, armed indigenous groups, and the occasional U.S. Special Forces insertion had the country on the no-go list for even the most intrepid foreign correspondents in the early 1990s. Today, the picture has changed drastically. The long war against the FARC is over. The cartels lost steam to even more violent competitors in Mexico. The economy and Colombian society in general in the prosperous urbanized coastal cities and in the capital Bogota are thriving. The contrast with the Bolivarian disaster in neighboring Venezuela is stark. But not all is well. FARC has kept to its pledge by and large to take the gun out of Colombian politics. But around the country's vast rural areas, there is anger that some of the promises of government investment that the FARC won from Santos at the peace table have gone unmet. Some 100,000 Colombians protested last month demanding evidence that the roads, schools, and hospitals would be built. It was peaceful, but it was also very tense. Now Colombia enters an election year. 2018 will see votes for a new president and a legislature in the country, and the temperature is rising again. So far, there's no favorite in the May 2018 election. In fact, there are 56 candidates for president. FARC, the political party, is already exploiting the discontent in rural areas, though so far there's been no widespread violence. But these are early days. The conversion of the violent, revolutionary armed forces of Colombia into a political party called Common Alternative Revolutionary Forces allowed its supporters to keep their notorious acronym. Both are abbreviated in Spanish as FARC. This FARC light now has its sights on the presidency, though few give it much chance of winning. But Colombia's peace will be sorely tested if the FARC's political transformation turns out to be as superficial as its rebranding. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Estoy procediendo a la acusación penal. 
los delitos de abuso deshonesto, violación con agravante y acoso sexual. Eso estoy llevando a las vías que establece la constitución de este país, ejerciendo mis derechos de mujer ante una tragedia que he vivido y esperando que sea la verdad la que se imponga a través de la justicia. So America Ortega Murillo faced an army of cameras and recorders, not to mention a barrage both of boos and cheers, in Nicaragua in 1998 when she filed formal charges of rape and sexual abuse against her stepfather, Daniel Ortega, revolutionary hero and the country's former president. Quote, I am taking the route which is laid out under the constitution of this country, she declared. I am exercising my rights as a woman in the face of a tragedy that I have lived, and I hope that the truth will prevail through justice. Her case was ultimately dismissed on a technicality. Dropping Ortega from her name, Zoy America felt forced to flee the country, and Nicaragua remains among the ten nations with highest rape crime numbers worldwide, number four to be precise, with 36.1 per 100,000 population, and number one in all Latin America, which many see, at least in part, as a follow-the-leader phenomenon, given the way Daniel Ortega, like many powerful men, from Managua to New York to Hollywood most recently, and beyond, can sidestep punishment and even trial. Rape and power in Nicaragua is the subject of a major article in the fall issue of World Policy Journal by freelance reporter Ian Bateson, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Ian, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Happy to be here. Let's stay with the Ortega case to begin. Uh, What did Zoil America charge he did to her at what age? So uh, when she started talking about this in 1998 and press charges, she was saying starting at the age of 11 in 1978 and going on for 12 years, including uh, all of Ortega's first presidency, that he was molesting her and also had raped her. Tell us about the pressure she felt not to go public and how long before she did. When she talks about this, you know, she says that a lot of pressure was put on her and she was told that it was a sacrifice she had to make to help the Sandinista cause, to help the revolution. So as a young teenager, you know, this wasn't just a personal issue, she says, the way people talked to her about it, but it was made into what she needed to do for the country, uh, putting a tremendous amount of psychological pressure on her. Uh, Now, she only came out in 1998. So this was almost 10 years after the period she talks about and brought charges concerning had ended. There's some speculation about why that may have been. It came shortly before a contest, uh, a challenge to Ortega for party leadership of the Sandinista party. Um, But these are convictions that, despite a lot of legal difficulties, she stood behind for well over a decade now. We shouldn't use the word convictions. These are the assertions or the... the assertions, sorry. Right, okay. I mean, part of what we're, we're talking about and, you know, what's so hard uh, with any sort of allegations of sexual abuse and rape is the issue uh, of trust and who do you trust Uh, And in particular, when there hasn't been an actual legal conviction, when nothing, uh, no sentence has been brought down, when a court hasn't validated it in that way, it makes it more difficult. But what you can say about her is she has been completely consistent in what she claims uh, since 1998. Since she started talking about it publicly, it's something she's talked about um, a lot. By the time she went to court against her stepfather, there was considerable public doubt and disfavor about her charges and a denial from her natural mother. 
tell us about that. I mean, it's difficult because Ortega, for many people, is still the face of the Sandinista revolution and the hopes of a lot of working class Nicaraguans for change. His politics have changed a lot from the 80s, but many people see him as the big face of the movement, though not all. Uh, what was probably most difficult is when these allegations first came out in 1998, the biggest critic of, uh, of Zoe America was her mother, who said that she was a liar who had psychological problems. Uh, and this has created you know, a lot of conflict between them. When Zoe America talks about it and when she's asked you know, why her mother took this position, she says this is, was her mother's path to power because her mother was not just the wife of the president. She was for a long time really the only uh, spokesperson for the government. She dominated in the media. And after the most recent presidential election, she was elected vice president or as some people are calling her co-president for the first time. Where is the stepdaughter now, and what does she say about the way her case ended, and, and Nicaragua's rape problem in general? She is in Costa Rica now. So her husband, who uh, is not a Nicaraguan citizen, had been deported. Her NGO had trouble getting funding, and this is what she credited uh, the government and policies of her stepfather and mother uh, intended to persecute her, to forcing her out of the country. Um, she doesn't talk so much about the problem throughout the whole country, or at least talks about it less, but she talks about it being an issue uh, with the people in power and the fact that they're able to act with impunity. What's certainly true in Nicaragua is that institutions are very weak in general and people with power and influence can usually get out from, from the law and keep from being punished. Uh, but she focuses on this very specific group. She doesn't feel that she was the only one during this period and uh, just sees complete inaction. So she originally brought her charges in 1998. They were eventually thrown out. Um, what they were stipulating was that too much time had gone by. There was a lot of criticism of that because, unfortunately, the courts in Nicaragua are not objective. They're very politicized and very closely linked um, to, to the ruling party. Now, after that, she went to the Inter-American Human Rights Commission to try and have them intervene, to try and have the case look at it again, because earlier on they had said that it had merits. And then in 2008, she, she pulled that, um, those legal proceedings that she'd initiated. Now, that's one of the big questions, because it's not entirely clear what happened. In one interview, she talked about being tired since all of this legal action had been going on for over a decade. Uh, it certainly wasn't helping her. Um, if anything, it was probably making her situation worse. But there, are, there do continue to be question marks in terms of the legal cases. Beyond providing a personal model for male behavior, you argue that Ortega contributed to the problem of sexual abuse long after his presidency by pushing for an absolute ban on abortion. What led him to do that? Ortega was out of power for a long time, uh, and it was only in 2006 when he won the election that he came back and he was president again. Now, in the 80s and when he lost the election in the 90s, religious conservatives and the church were really enemies of his, and he and his party were very critical of them. And there seems to have been a coordinated effort on his part to both bring himself and the party in line to allow them to win those votes. Now, that included becoming a practicing Catholic, uh, marrying his uh, longtime partner, 
Uh, they claimed that it was, you know, renewing of vows, uh, but there's been a lot of criticism of that. In the 80s, he was a self-avowed atheist. Uh, throughout Central America and Latin America, there has been growing sentiment, anti-abortion sentiment, um, as there has been in many countries across the world. But it was really ahead of this critical elections 11 days before the parliamentary and presidential election that he threw his party's support uh, behind a total abortion ban, and it passed. Now, there had never been elective abortion in Nicaragua legally, but they did have a criminal code that allowed for abortions in cases of rape and when the mother's life was at risk. Now there are absolutely no exemptions to that. So even if a fetus has no chance of being viable after being born, if the mother's life is in danger, if the child is a product of rape, uh, it is completely illegal with prison terms both for the mother and any physician or other person who would perform an abortion. You say there's not much government information on how effective the ban has been, national statistics on abortions or teen pregnancy, uh, also for political reasons, but outside agencies have quite a lot. Tell us more about both. There's different information for outside agencies. Yes, they're looking at the general numbers. There's also a small study done by the Association for Women and Messiah that I write about where they did uh, a survey of 46 healthcare officials. 70.5 uh, of the people they spoke to said they dealt with um, pregnancy, pregnancies resulting from rape, and 70% of those said the people that were pregnant uh, were between the ages of 13 and 17. So it is a very, very large problem. Now, you also have the Ministry of Health statistics that 18.3% of women 15 to 19 are pregnant or already mothers. So um, teen pregnancy is very high. Uh, you mentioned the rape statistics before. Those are also very high. And the sad thing talking to a lot of uh, women's rights organizations is the whole culture behind that. I mean, what really hit me was uh, talking to Aaliyah, who I mentioned in the article, but she gave me an example of you know rural villages where they don't want the young and in particular intelligent women to leave so they'll intentionally um someone in the village will rape them try and get them pregnant because then they know they'll be busy trying to deal with their children so there unfortunately is um a big culture uh of tolerance throughout society with this now that predates ortega but Ortega, as someone who has been leading the country for over a decade now, sets this, you know, sends this image that you can get away with it, that that's fine. And that's reinforced by the abortion ban, which, again, women's rights activists, you know, say sent this message that men have the right to control women's bodies, that they can tell them uh, what they can and can't do. And the really sad thing is because most prosecution of rape and sexual abuse goes nowhere, doesn't uh, result in a conviction, it means that men can get away with those crimes. Well, women are then stuck without abortion as a way of dealing with it, trying to you know, deal with their own health, raise children um, with very little support and put in a very bad legal situation. Uh, as you just suggested or indicated, a disproportionate amount of Nicaragua's sexual abuse targets are young girls, uh, as in the case of Zola America, though with less publicity. Uh, talk about the 15-year-old you call Lucia. What happened to her and where? So I can't say exactly where it happened because they're, unfortunately, if her neighbors knew that uh, the whole story um, or that, you know, she had conceived a child out of wetlock, it would make life very difficult for them. But they live in a small town in central Nicaragua. And one day, you know, she had had uh, stomach pains for a little while. So her mother had taken her to the local clinic to see what was wrong. 
after they went and saw the doctor, the doctor announced that she was pregnant. And then walking back, her mother was in complete shock and was trying to figure out what happened. Uh, in particular because you know, she didn't have a boyfriend. She wasn't really out. She was very studious, and most of her social life had to do with uh, you know, Catholic Church youth trips uh, and the choir. And then you know, she explained that it was actually the priest who, from these groups who was leading them who'd been raping her for two years and had threatened her and said, you know, if you try and tell anyone, they will believe me because I'm a priest and they won't believe you because you're a young girl. Um, and so that was one of the examples I was really looking at. And for me, it came to this issue uh, of who do you believe and, and trust because, uh, you know, she didn't even really believe herself being told by someone of authority, being told by someone from a respected institution like the church that his word was worth more than hers. It made it that much harder to, to believe herself and try and do something. Now, in Nicaragua, it's very hard because a lot of the institutions, you know, like the police, like the forensics office that are legally charged with investigating these crimes and starting a case, uh, they will back off if it's someone who's high profile. It's hard to make it move forward. And that discourages a lot of women from uh, trying to take action because it's a huge investment, uh, especially emotionally, to deal with this. And if word gets around, it can be very, very damaging. At the same time, uh, people like Aaliyah activists believe that if, uh, if more cases are brought forward, seen as a part of a society-wide problem that it could actually push for there to be more repercussions and encourage even more people to come forward. And I think that's something a lot of people are thinking about these days, not just in Nicaragua, but certainly in the U.S. and in the wider world after the Me Too movement um, and you know, all the revelations coming out of Hollywood that hopefully recognizing a broader trend can lead to some sort of action. I don't think we're there yet, but just recognizing the scale of it and for people to see that they're not, not alone. In Lucia's case, her mother and father were supportive. To what lengths did they go? Her parents, uh, I think, were pretty incredible, honestly. You know, talking to them, they were so proud of their daughter, everything she'd achieved, you know, bright and curious, and they never doubted her for a second. So her father really followed up with the police, called, you know, because they would try and brush him off and say, oh, okay, we're working on it, you know, I'll give you some time. Another point, they said, oh, yeah, we'll send you some, you know, some food and other things to support you, trying to make it sound happy. Um, none of that ever arrived. So he kept the pressure on them, kept it trying to move, and eventually he saw that wasn't going anywhere. So then he went to the current cardinal of Nicaragua, spoke to him and said, you know, look, we have this priest uh, who, who raped my teenage daughter. Uh, I want there to be repercussions. And at the time, since she was pregnant and hadn't given birth yet, um, what you know, he also wanted was help for a private clinic because he felt she was a high-risk pregnancy and her life could be, could be at risk. Uh, unfortunately, from what he had told me, you know, he spoke with the cardinal. The cardinal said, okay, we'll do a DNA test. If the DNA test comes out positive, then the priest will be punished and will make sure that he pays child support. Unfortunately, none of that happened, and it's not clear where the priest uh, was moved to. So a very sad story, even though in this case, you know, at least Lucia, she really had the support of her parents, who, not a wealthy family, both, uh, you know, with very irregular work, but have really come around with her and trying to support her. Now, though, they're in a difficult situation because they have her, they have their own son, and now uh, the grandson. And Lucia, you know, was amazingly, uh, though she was forced to leave the elite boarding school she was going to, 
uh, was able to finish high school, was able to get some basic certification um, for, for working as a nurse. But the sad irony is even with all this pressure for her to work to provide you know, this end of her childhood, she's only 17 now. So she's still a legal minor and doesn't have the right to work full time. So she can only fill in for other people when they're not there. Uh, so there has been a tremendous uh, amount of support, and I think the family came together and they've worked there, but it just very difficult situation and with no, no real resolution or repercussions. Is there evidence or belief that members of the clergy in Nicaragua represent a larger portion of sexual abusers than in other countries in the region or beyond? I don't have statistics about that. And when I spoke to people from different women's organizations and people who report about sexual abuse in Nicaragua, they were very surprised that it was a priest. Uh, obviously, in recent decades, we've become more used to those sort of scandals. Um, but it still seems to be much more uh, the exception, exception than the rule. Well, it's never the rule, but it doesn't seem to be a sign of some, some larger trend. The really worrying thing in Nicaragua is the way this is tolerated by large segments of the society, uh, regardless of who it is, just any, any sort of man in a position of power. Talk more about the work of women's groups in Nicaragua to support victims of rape and change the machismo, machismo, the psychology behind it and the, the reluctance to, per, to prosecute. Uh, first, consciousness raising, something called the I Believe You campaign. Yeah, um, you know, this is their campaign with hashtags and social media and elsewhere with just the simple words, I believe you, you know, coming back to this trust issue that we talked about a little bit before, just that people who could see it and people who were maybe uh, considering coming forward but weren't quite ready, that they could see that there are people ready to support them. Um, because for many people, you know, that is the most terrifying thing. If you are just barely coming to terms with that issue yourself, uh, and then immediately you're going to be faced with people who doubt you and uh, are going to try and blame you or ask what you did or how you dressed. That makes it incredibly difficult. So it's, uh, it's a small campaign, but powerful, and just trying to raise some awareness. And Lucia, with uh, other young women who had been raped, created a video within the same, the same ethos of that project where, with their faces blacked out, um, you know, they at least were talking about their experiences. They were saying what happened to them uh, and also trying to take control a little bit, choosing who they're sharing it with and trying to make other people aware. The hard thing is women's groups in Nicaragua are very limited in what they can do. The abortion ban is still popular. Nicaragua is a very religious country and uh, El Salvador has even stricter laws. So, you know, there are people who go out and protest, but there hasn't been a big push to repeal the ban. Um, so it's these smaller steps right now that they're trying to focus on to make sure there is some visibility, and particularly, particularly in cases of sexual abuse, that people are made to know about it, that uh, they can put people in touch with lawyers. And when these cases come through, if a judge is trying to drop them, as they often do, you know, they'll put, get the word out on social media, they'll let people know that this is happening, and they'll bring a lot of activists to a court to stop them from doing it. So I, I think they're just very, very impressive um, for having small resources and having to be a mixture of assertive um, when going to courts and dealing with officials while incredibly uh, kind and uh, patient with the people who come in. I think they are very good at that. 
given what's happening in the United States and around the world, do the women's groups in Nicaragua expect a turning point if there are charges and admissions or convictions involving a prominent, powerful man who is not also a national hero and former president, uh, a major media figure like Hollywood's Harvey Weinstein or, or cable star Bill O'Reilly? When I spoke to them, they weren't expecting any sort of a big change soon. You know, they're, they're playing a long game of trying to raise awareness with time, you know, helping the women who have been abused and keeping them engaged and feeling like they have a support group of people who agree with them that that wasn't right and would like to see change. Um, you know, as it is right now, the, the structures as they are, don't protect uh, most women when when these events happen. Uh, and I think Nicaragua is not, not alone in this. A lot of structures uh, don't do that, uh, including in the U.S., uh, though there's more respect for law. So I think, you know, when I look at Nicaragua, I always think of how quickly things can change. According to Salman Rushdie, when he was writing about Nicaragua in the 80s and did reporting there, they were even considering a constitutional amendment at the time to allow abortion. And now over a decade has gone by when there has been absolutely no abortions and it's not popular. Uh, and you haven't really had much progress in terms of legislation that would see to it that sexual abusers are punished. Um, so I think it's a global struggle, but I think Nicaragua shows how quickly rights can be lost and how difficult it can be to regain them. Ian, thank you. Thank you. Ian Bateson, a freelance journalist normally based in Ukraine, reported on rape and power in Nicaragua with a grant from the International Reporting Project. Also featured in the WPJ Fall Issue, you'll find articles about defending families from terrorist recruitment, about the drawbacks to Latin America's responsible paternity laws, and about a dark side of the global lottery cartel. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. 